Can I invite you, church family, to join me in the Gospel of John, 19th chapter? John chapter 19, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We keep some in the back just in case that would be your need this morning. There's a little note page in your bulletin, if you wouldn't mind grabbing that also. Uh, we'll be kind of following that as a track and might be helpful to you. John chapter 19, and church family, I'm going to ask you, though I want you to have your Bible open to John 19, I'm just going to ask you if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes and just listening. Allow me to read for us um, the passage that will set the stage for our time together. So you're welcome to follow along if you'd like, but uh, maybe the more powerful personal way that this passage will touch you is if you just close your eyes and listen to the Holy Spirit as he reads, as he, he shares this moment with us from Jesus and the cross. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, so to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And Holy Spirit, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, who better than you to come now and bring your word to life for us? These words are 2,000 years old, but they're your words, and therefore they are timeless, and their truth is timeless. And I would just ask you, I plead with you, Holy Spirit, to simply use me as the mouthpiece for yourself, that your people would hear you, living God, talking to them, reminding them of who they are in you and what you have done for them, for me. This is your time. This is your word. We're thirsty. And all God's people said, amen and amen. All right. 
All right, so here's the scene. And any parent in the room today, young or old, I think can relate to this moment. Your kids are little, two, three years old. It's been a long day. You're tired. You can already relate to that, right? Well, it's the kids' bedtime now, and they're in their footy pajamas, and you've read them a story, and you've prayed with them. You've tucked them in tight like they like to be tucked in. You've made sure that the nightlight is on, and you close the door so that there's just a crack because they like it that way too. And, and then you head straight for your favorite chair. And you don't sit in your favorite chair. You kind of, well, you sort of sink into it because it's your favorite chair. You draw a long, slow breath, and you close your eyes, and you settle in because you have been waiting for this all day long. A few moments, all your own. Can you relate? But then a tiny, muffled voice emanates from the other room. You didn't hear it, you tell yourself. I heard nothing. And then you hear it again, a second time with a personal address. Mommy, Daddy, I'm thirsty. No, you're not, honey. Go to bed. Go to sleep. I can't go to sleep. Mommy, Daddy, I can't go to sleep. I'm thirsty. I'm bad thirsty, really bad thirsty. Followed by another squeaky, high-pitched voice from the same room. Me too. Because we all know bedtime thirst is a, it's a contagious disorder, right? Oh, mumble, grumble, mumble, grumble. You go and you get the glass of water and you take it into the bedroom. And each of these thirst-ravaged souls takes just the tiniest little bird sip out of the, of the glass of water, even though they were so thirsty. And now quenched and tucked and kissed one more time, your chair welcomes you and but you don't get too comfortable because you know, as a mommy or a daddy, that soon you're going to hear, I need to go to the bathroom, right? Every parent knows this drama. You've played this story out. And this is what we might maybe this morning could call uh, thirst's lighter side, the lighter side of a thirst story. But But church family, on a much more serious note, certainly thirst is something that we all can identify with. And if we've ever been really, really thirsty, we know that it's not a light matter at all. Thirst is a universal need. We all have it. Our bodies have to have water, sufficient amounts of water, or bad things happen. We dehydrate, then our kidneys will shut down, and eventually death will come in just a matter of a few days if we have no water. We can go a surprisingly long time without food, uh, over a month actually, but not long if we don't have water. In fact, my guess is that if you have ever been deprived of water for a significant period of time to the point where you could think of nothing else but your thirst, that probably is a life event, a life moment for you that you still remember with great detail. Would that be true? If you have ever had that really parched moment. I will remember the most parched moment of my life. I was in high school. My dad, my younger brother, and I had determined that we would climb the highest point in Texas called Guadalupe Peak. Uh, it's out in the desert lands west in West Texas, not far from the Mexican border, and we made the foolish decision to climb this peak in August. 
That was the first mistake. <laughs> it was going to easily reach 115 degrees uh, that day. We started early in the morning while it was still dark, and we thought that we had taken plenty of water. We were really wrong. We ran out of water by early afternoon before we'd even reached the top of this, this peak. And then, thinking it was not wise to continue on farther in this heat without any water, we determined that we would take a shortcut back to our car. Well, you know how shortcuts go, right? Yeah, well, that's what happened. About 10 o'clock that night, 20 hours after we had started out, we were absolutely spent, exhausted, and we were severely dehydrated. I mean severely. Not, none of us knew at the time how much danger we were really in, but, but we were clearly in great danger. We get back to the car, and I mean to tell you, I now had a very new understanding of what the word cottonmouth means. I have never forgotten the experience of that intense thirst. Though I have been thirsty on a number of other occasions, nothing that even comes close to that moment. And maybe you can retrieve your most thirsty moment ever. If you can, it may help you to appreciate even more fully where we want to spend some time together this morning in God's word. And if you can't retrieve that moment, that's okay, because the truth is, no matter how thirsty any of us have ever been, it's not likely that our experience will even remotely begin to compare with the experience of the Lord Jesus as we join him in that terrible scene of the crucifixion that uh, I just read for us out of John 19. For the seven Sundays leading up to Easter, we have committed ourselves, if you've been with us, to taking a serious look at the seven statements that Jesus makes while he is hanging on the cross. Our series is called The Seven Words, and we are using these words to help us prepare our hearts for a glorious celebration of the resurrection the thought being that if we spend seven weeks with jesus in the agonies of his crucifixion boy our joy when we celebrate the empty tomb and a risen lord is just going to be off the charts that's kind of the idea behind the timing of what we're doing so thus far we have heard words of forgiveness as jesus prays for those who were crucifying him Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. We heard words of salvation, as Jesus says to a, to a dying rebel next to him on another cross. He says to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And then we heard lo- words of loving care, as Jesus says to his mother, Dear woman, here's your son, a reference to John, who will take care of her for the rest of her days. And then last time we were together, we heard the most horrific words that I believe have ever been spoken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words of unspeakable anguish as Jesus actually became sin for us. And we talked about that. He became sin for us, became our sin. And the life-changing, eternity-changing truth that we came away from as we shared that fourth word from the cross is the realization that Jesus spoke the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we would never have to say those words. Oh, amen and amen. 
Well, today, the fifth of Jesus' seven words comes from John 19, verse 28, the words, I thirst. Now, on the surface, it may seem a little bit strange that a whole morning, a whole message should be built around a text that's only two words long, perhaps three words in your version, two words in in mine, I thirst. But as we are about to see together, sometimes the very best things are really wrapped up in small packages. So the question is, how can these two little words, I thirst, spoken so long ago, make a difference in your life today, right now, in my life today? Well, there is an answer for that. It's going to make a huge difference for us. Let's take a closer look, starting there on your note page with what would be, I'm guessing, the most obvious thing to state. When Jesus says, after hanging for hours upon the cross, the words, I thirst, we are being reminded in these two little words that Jesus did, in fact, suffer terribly for you and for me. And I realize that is stating the obvious, but it needs to be stated. The only two small words, do they not betray to us a depth of physical suffering that honestly we can only slightly comprehend? I thirst summarizes powerfully the brutality of the previous 18 hours for Jesus. From the time that he left the upper room that he had shared a meal with, with his disciples, if you remember, and then went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. From that moment on until this moment here in verse 28, it is reasonable to assume, I think, that Jesus has had nothing to drink the past 18 hours. In the Garden, he prayed, if you recall, with such deep emotion and anguish of soul that we're told by Luke that the the sweat just rolled off of him rolled off of his forehead, off of his face, fell to the ground like great drops of blood. And the exertion of that alone would have called for a refreshing drink. But, of course, uh, he was arrested in the garden before that could happen. And then followed the mock trials all through the night and early into Friday morning. There were the beatings that occurred there during those trials. And then Pilate orders that Jesus be scourged with a cat of nine tails and And so his back and his sides and his shoulders and his legs have been savagely laid open, resulting in uh, what would have been a a great loss of blood, inflaming an already very thirsty Jesus. A crown of thorns and then a torturous journey through the Jerusalem streets as he's carrying his cross on his shoulders. Some speculate that that cross being that he carried may have weighed as much as 100 pounds. That would have further added to his burning thirst. And all of this time, no water, nothing of any kind to drink, because really that's part of the punishment that is attached to this death sentence. And of course, the nailing of his hands and his feet brings further loss of blood, and he hangs there for three hours in the increasingly intense morning sun followed by three more hours in a supernatural darkness, we are told. Six hours impaled on this cross. And though his wounds may clot some, they never really do stop bleeding because if you remember when we were talking about this a few weeks ago, during all of that time that Jesus is hanging on the cross, 
He must continually push himself up off of uh, his uh, off of his hands and his feet in order just to be able to breathe. He has to continually do that, and so these wounds remain constantly open. Continual flow of precious fluids, unimaginable burning thirst. That and so much more, I would submit to you, is captured in the words, I thirst. They really are the words of terrible suffering. Reminding us that our Jesus did not did not come to wear a bulletproof vest. He, he did not come in a suit of divine armor that would permit him to be our savior without feeling our agony, our, uh, the consequences of our sin. He experienced our punishment, brothers and sisters, and he did so in the fullest terrible measure. What can we say but thank you, Jesus? And yet even as Jesus speaks these words, you probably already noticed that John in his account is quick to let us know that, that Jesus said them in part to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. Did you catch that in verse 28? Look again at those words. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. In other words, Jesus is suffering terribly, yet even in this, he is completely in control of himself and of this moment. And we don't want to miss that, that little detail. He is aware that there is a statement that was made in Psalm 69, a psalm in the Old Testament that foreshadowed the suffering of the Messiah 950 years before Jesus even comes into our world. And there's a, there's a prophecy there that has not been fulfilled. Psalm 69, 21, it reads like this. They gave me poison or gall for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. The first half of this verse has already been fulfilled when Matthew tells us in his gospel that Jesus was offered a mixture that had gall in it, kind of a narcotic that would deaden some of the pain of the crucifixion, Jesus, if you remember, Matthew tells us that Jesus refused to take that mixture, absorbing the full brunt of pain and suffering. However, though, still unfulfilled is the second part of that prophecy. Jesus, though it is hard to imagine in this moment of incredible, intense physical suffering, he knows that this prophecy is still unfulfilled. And so what does he do? He asks for a drink. A sponge is soaked with some cheap wine that has begun to sour. And it was offered to Jesus at the end of a stick, and he took it, fulfilling yet one more prophetic detail concerning the Messiah's suffering. But what we are reminded of is that though he is enduring this incredible physical suffering, incomprehensible to us, he is nevertheless in control of himself and what is going on. It confirms what Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of John. I lay down my life and I take it up again, right? He is in control. Now, as a practical observation, maybe just kind of as a sidebar note for us before we move on, just tuck this thought away. There is probably no other moment in Jesus' experience 
when he was more vulnerable, more physically pressed, more emotionally depleted, more spiritually burdened, because remember, he is actually becoming sin for us in this moment. So there's no more vulnerable moment than this for Jesus, and yet still he is able to to cover this seemingly insignificant detail of Scripture right down to the last letter and ask for a drink. I'm thirsty. Now, given that that is true, should we not be able, brothers and sisters, to, to put our faith and our trust in him, confident that he is easily able to attend to our needs, our issues, our, our circumstances, our fears, our situations, the people in our life, the challenges? If the cross could not render Jesus ineffective in the most vulnerable moment of his earthly life, if it could not distract him from even the smallest detail, is it not safe and certain for us to know in our heart of hearts that he is not only in our present, but he also has our future firmly in his grip? Is that reasonable? That comes out of these two little words. I thirst. They remind us that Jesus suffered terribly, yet he is in complete control. And then if you'll take that little note page and if you flip it over, secondly, these two little words remind us that Jesus is fully human, even as he is fully God. Is that important to us? Church family, is that important? You bet it is. Absolutely, it is important. Now, I don't know how it goes for you although I suspect that it goes for you as it does for me, but sometimes I find it hard to connect my heart, to connect my mind with the, the physical Jesus, to, to see God, the God who is the creator of all things, the universe and everything that we can see and can't see, that great God, to conceive of him, uh, confining himself into a physical body like mine is sometimes hard for me to get my head and my heart around. Would that be true for you? <laughs> Man, God in flesh making his dwelling among us, as John says in, in the opening chapter of his gospel, that is, that is hard to get a hold of sometimes. Jesus is, after all, in the pages of Scripture, the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the exalted Son, seated at the Father's right hand. He's the... He's the eternally existing one, the second person of the Trinity. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. And all of that is packaged into this, a body. That's hard to, that's hard to, to imagine that. And being separated by 20 centuries from all of that makes it even more challenging for us. But but, you know, when I allow myself to dwell on these two little words, I thirst. And I think about Jesus as the one who is saying these words from the cross. That helps me. That really helps me remember his humanity. That he is like me. The God of the universe has parched lips. The creator of the world's oceans desperately needs a drink. 
the second person of the Trinity who, who scratched with his finger the canyons and the courses of the earth's mighty rivers longs for a sip, just a sip of cold water from one of those rivers. This is a very human Jesus. God the Father doesn't get thirsty. God the Holy Spirit doesn't get thirsty. The angels don't get thirsty. Heaven's a place where there is no hunger, there is no thirst, there is no physical threat of any kind, the book of Revelation tells us. In fact, flowing from the throne of God in the book of Revelation is the river of the water of life without end. It flows from God. And yet, Jesus is what? Thirsty. He is so thirsty. Because while he is fully God, he is also fully human, fully us. In Jesus, we have the one and only perfect union of deity and humanity. The Holy Spirit puts it this way so beautifully in the opening chapter of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. It's there on your note page, but I'd really love for us to read this together. Can we read this verse right off the screen together just to remind us of this wedding together of the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Let's do that. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the word Jesus became what? flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, Jesus never ceased to be all that he was before he entered the world at Bethlehem. But when he came, man, he is all in. He put on our humanity fully and completely. He became flesh and came to live in our shoes and experience what we experience without sin, but fully and completely human. In fact, the Holy Spirit will declare this Identical truth again through the Apostle Paul's pen. Chapter 2 of Philippians, it's there on your page. Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in what? Human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When Jesus says, I thirst, it's as if a cannon shot has gone off in the crucifixion narrative. Our thoughts are stopped dead in our tracks. Deity embraces personally and fully our frail humanity. Jesus says these words, don't forget. Don't forget, I'm one of you. I thirst. I'm God, but I'm one of you. And that, as you've already affirmed, is absolutely essential. That he be fully God and he be fully us. Right? Yet without sin. Why is that so important? Why is that absolutely essential, Christian? That, that Jesus be fully God and fully us without sin. Why is that so important? That's because Jesus cannot stand in our place. He cannot represent us before God. He can't be an acceptable substitute for us. He can't rightly or legally assume the penalty of our sin unless he is fully us, right? But without sin. 
Let me give you a little illustration. We would think it utterly ridiculous if we were watching a track and field competition and one of the sprinters walks up to the starting line and he has a cheetah on a leash. And the cheetah's wearing a little bib with a number on it. And one of the race officials asks this runner, he says, well, what's that all about? And, and the athlete says, well, I've decided to have the cheetah run in my place. It will represent me today in this race. And the official says, well, I don't think so. Right? Why not the athlete protests? And the official responds by saying, the cheetah is not like you. It's not like any of the other runners. You have a substitute that is not qualified. Your substitute has to be what you are in order to represent you. Get in there and run. <laughs> you know, the same is true when it came to our salvation. Only someone like us, yet without our sin, could represent us and stand in our place. And so God asks Jesus to stand, or more accurately, to hang in our place, and Jesus accepts and so you see, in a, in a terribly real way, I thirst reminds us that sinless God came to us in true human likeness with a servant's heart, having become all that we are while sinless so that he could fully represent us before a holy God at the cross. I thirst powerfully reminds me of that and you of that. But those two words remind us of even more. They remind us there on your note page that Jesus spoke of his physical need, but he was also pointing to our spiritual need, even as he says these words, I thirst. As Jesus hangs on the cross for the sin of the world, and he says those words, he in a way, church family, is speaking for a world that doesn't know him. He's talking for us. He's talking for you. He's talking for me. He's talking for a sin-filled world. The people who live around us and who work with us and who go to school with us and who we meet at the post office and we do garden club with and we run into at the coffee shop and we play softball with during the, the week. All of those people are thirsty people, Right? They are thirsty, spiritually thirsty, terribly thirsty, even though they might not know that or be willing to tell anybody that. And the thirst they have is what we might call a thirst of the soul. We all have this thirst. We're all born with this thirst because God has placed an awareness of eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that, that he has set eternity in the human heart. Everyone in the deepest part of who they are knows that this life is more than this life. They know that because God has put that in our hearts. God put that awareness there. People are thirsty. I know that my life doesn't stop here. There's more. But, but I, don't know, I don't know what that means. And so we're all born thirsty, but in our sinfulness, we really don't know how to quench that thirst. Unless somebody tells us how, we don't know how to quench the parched soul. Everyone personally wants to, to know and experience a life that has meaning and, and fulfillment and makes sense and has joy and it's going somewhere. 
Everyone wants that. People are thirsty. But how do I get that? How do I get the, the life that really satisfies? In our culture, people do not know. If they refuse to look in a Godward direction, they look in other directions to satisfy the thirst of the soul. There's a, there are those, and you know them, who, for example, think this, this thirst of the soul can be quenched through wealth. If I have more money, well, then I won't be so thirsty. I'll be satisfied, right? You know them. You know them. But that's Satan's lie, is it not? J.D. Rockefeller, once the wealthiest man in America, when asked by a reporter on one occasion, how much money is enough, Mr. Rockefeller? Do you know what his answer was? He was brutally honest, and he said, just a little bit more than you have. He was confessing what? Thirst. Thirst of the soul. Money didn't satisfy. The one whose passion is power or position or fame is thirsty. Only when they acquire these things, the, the, the funny thing is the, the, the thirst remains, right? A corner office, a corporate title, your name in lights on a marquee does not quench the thirst of the soul. I remember hearing Mel Gibson in person years ago. It was at a, a pre-screening of the film, The Passion of the Christ. And there were about 2,000 pastors that had been invited to see this pre-screening of the movie before it went out to the public. And, and so he's talking about his film. And he said that the film was born out of a moment 12 years prior to its making when he was standing on the 15th floor balcony of a hotel utterly and completely empty and questioning whether he wanted to even go on. He was contemplating going over the side of the balcony. And he said, I had it all, but I had nothing. What he was really confessing was a thirst of the soul, wasn't it? That's what he was confessing. Some long for the physical appearance that will allow them to feel good about themselves and be accepted by others. But the funny thing about that, that thirst, is that you can remake the outside, but you're still thirsty on the inside, right? Others bounce from religion to religion, from cult to cult, looking to satisfy the thirst of the soul, so confused, never satisfied, so thirsty. Now, here in John 19, would you please turn back in the Gospel of John to chapter 4 for just a moment? You'll know the scene as I take you to it. Jesus is sitting alone uh, by a well one day, and a woman comes out from the nearby town to draw water, and, and it's the middle of the day. It's, 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 it's noon, and, and she is alone also. And she has a thirst of soul that she has been trying to quench for a long time. She longs for love. She longs for acceptance. She longs for security and for meaning in her life. And she's sought to satisfy that thirst of the soul through multiple relationships. Many men have been in her life, but she is parched. Jesus knows this because he can look right into her heart. He asks her for a drink of water, and we pick up the story in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, motioning to the well, is going to be thirsty again. But, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, what was Jesus saying to this woman? What's he saying? Is he not saying, woman, the things of this world will never quench your thirst. As long as you drink from the world's well and what it has to offer you, you are going to be thirsty all the time. But whoever drinks the water that I give them, never thirst again. Jesus was inviting her to trust in him personally. Yes? To believe in him and to stop believing in the world and its offerings. Before this chapter ends, it dawns on this woman that that Jesus is different, like no one she's ever met, and she'll end up telling her entire town about Jesus, and she and many others will trust in him and discover that he alone quenches the thirsty soul. I would ask you to hear Jesus' words in John 19:28 as an invitation, not unlike the one he extends in John 4. Jesus says, I thirst, even as he is being the living water. He thirsts, we will never, ever have to experience thirst of the soul. He's dying on that cross, parched, experiencing ravaging thirst, and yet he is the living water. We must see this. This is the centerpiece of these words. He he satisfies the parched soul. Well, as we wrap things up here, it's really clear that these two little words are far more than just a window into the suffering of our Savior. They are words that lead to life, really eternal life for perhaps someone that you know. Jesus is the one who quenches thirst. These are a challenge to us, these two words. On your note page, these words remind us that someone we might know today is thirsty, spiritually thirsty. They, they're going to die, and they're going to enter a Christless eternity unless someone shows them where the water is, right? That's the truth. But the thing is, we know where the water is. You do and I do. We know that it is Jesus who quenches the soul's thirst. And and so what can we do right now, today, practically, you and me, to help maybe lead a friend, a neighbor, a fellow student to the water? What can we do? Well, five suggestions there very quickly on your note page. First, we walk godly and we live differently. Agreed? Yeah, absolutely. People are going to be attracted to your life if you are living it consistently for Jesus. They can spot a phony a mile away. The gospel, the the good news about Jesus, who he is and, and what he has done, will eventually have to cross over 
from one person to another on a bridge of words. We have to talk about Jesus, who he is and what he's done and how we can have a personal relationship with him. That message crosses over on a bridge of words, but the pillars that hold up the bridge are going to be your life. It's going to be your life. And so we, we walk godly and we live differently. Secondly, speaking of opportunities to share our faith, we ask the Holy Spirit for opportunity. The New Testament writer James uh, reminds us that we oftentimes do not have because we don't what? We don't ask. We simply fail to ask. Jesus will say in Matthew 9.38, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the field. How often do you and I, and I won't ask you to respond out loud, but how often do you and I consciously, deliberately ask our Father in heaven for the privilege of sharing the water with someone who is thirsty? How often do we do that? Holy Spirit, break into someone's life, my friend's life, in some way that will permit them to see how much you love them and want a personal relationship with them through Jesus and then give me the privilege of speaking with them about you today. We ask for the privilege to share the water. We can do that. Third, we we tell our own hope story when we're asked. Often we think we have to be walking theological encyclopedias before we can talk about Jesus. And the reason we think that way is because perish the thought that I would share Jesus with my friend and they would ask me a question I can't answer. Right? Right? And so what do we do? Fellow Christian, what do we do? We don't do anything. Because we don't want to be put in that position. We don't want to be put in a position of trying to answer questions that we can't answer person has hard questions and we don't want to reflect badly on God and we don't want to be in that uncomfortable place and so rather than talk about Jesus we don't do anything oh. First Peter 3.15 in your heart set apart, set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have Thirsty people don't need a well-polished four-point outline to quench their thirst. They need to hear how Jesus changed you. You can talk about that because you know about that. And they can't refute that or debate that. That's true. That happened to you. Jesus changed you. So you share your hope. Fourth, encourage your thirsty friend to join you on Easter Sunday. Or perhaps this coming Sunday. Why wait for three weeks, right? Barna, and, I, and the reason I share this with you, Barna Research Group, I don't know if you're familiar with this organization. It's a, it's a Christian polling company that has gained uh, wide credibility for their work in assessing trends and, and attitudes within American culture when it comes to faith-related issues. In a recent study uh, of, of their research, they, they have discovered that 47% of American adults who do not attend any church right now said that they would be open to going to church if their friend would just invite them. They won't go on their own. But nearly half will go if they're asked. That's, that's almost one out of two. Those are pretty good odds, right? That's encouraging. All we have to do is ask. And then lastly, remember, it's not up to us to make another person believe in Jesus. It's not up to us to have their thirst quenched. 
Only God can change a heart. Our job is not to save somebody, right? That's not our job. All God asks for us to do is to be willing to be used by him. We may just plant the seed. We may water the seed that someone else planted years ago. Quenching spiritual thirst is God's business. Telling others where the water is, that's our privilege. Two little words spoken near the end of a horrific day for Jesus. They speak of suffering. They speak of humanity. They speak of substitution. They speak of our own spiritual need. And they remind us that we have what a thirsty world needs. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, wow. So much, Lord Jesus, in those two little words that you spoke. Unimaginable for us to comprehend everything that is there. But you have been faithful to unfold some of the truth to us this morning. And we thank you so much for that. And if just for a moment, if, if, if you're here today and you are thirsty for a life that truly satisfies and has purpose and meaning in a future, once again, it's only going to be found in Jesus. It's only going to be found in a personal relationship with him. He is the living water. Stop looking to this world to quench your thirst because it's not going to happen. Allow Jesus to hang in your place. Pay your penalty for you. Give your life to him in simple faith. Say, I believe you died for me. And start experiencing what it's like to live with the God who has quenched your spiritual thirst. That's happened for so many in this room. And it can happen for you. And for those of us for whom that has happened, the challenge before us that has been set down before us is that we would share where the water is with someone that we know. May it happen this week. May you be bold. May you be courageous. May you be daring. May you just be you and share your hope. That's all. That's all you have to do. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We love you. But only because you loved us first. Thank you for these two little words and a chance to share them together today. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen, amen and amen.